Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. We are continuing to recap some of the biggest holiday classics of all time, at least in my book. And today, we are taking on two films, the first of which is one of those movies, you know, sometimes there's just a film that's encoded in your DNA. You've seen it so many times because it came out at a certain point in your life. 1990s Home Alone is one of those movies for me. I have seen it, I couldn't tell you how many times, not just in theaters, but also on VHS when it aired on NBC on Thanksgiving night dozens of times easily we'll be talking about that movie how it was much more of a blockbuster than even you might remember especially if you weren't around when it came out and we will also be talking about Home Alone 2 which is the sequel to the first movie and is pretty much the same movie just done all over again as so many sequels are. Before we do that, though, I'd like to thank everyone who's listening to the show. If you're listening to us as an audio podcast, if you haven't left us a rating or a review, I would really appreciate that. It helps the show grow. And if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming back yet again. Feel free to check out the audio version as well. You can take it with you. I guess you can take it with you on YouTube as well. Download two versions. Why not? One for us, one for the kids. Home Alone and Home Alone 2 are the third and fourth films on our holiday list that involve writer, producer, and sometimes director John Hughes. He wrote both films. He produced both films. He was also the director and writer of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He was the writer of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which we've talked about in recent weeks. John Hughes just knows how to do the holidays, and it really plays to his strengths. We've talked about the fact that he can juggle many different tones, and that's really what the holidays are for so many people. There's happiness and sadness. There's warmth and coldness, both physical and emotional. So it seems like John Hughes really did have a gift for tapping into just how people were feeling at this time of year. And the roots of this story in particular came from another film that Hughes developed a couple years before Home Alone came out, starring John Candy, and that is Uncle Buck. In particular, one of its stars, a young actor named Macaulay Culkin. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Despite being inspired to write a film with a child lead by Macaulay Culkin, there was still a very wide search for who would play Kevin McAllister. And as a matter of fact, they saw hundreds of kids before eventually settling on Hughes' original inspiration. John Hughes suggested... Uh, me for the part and uh, you know Chris wanted you know he met with me early on but he also wanted to meet with other people he just didn't want to just take the first thing that was in front of him. After meeting 400 other kids I realized that there was no one as special or as unique or as talented as Macaulay. When we talk about the success of Home Alone, particularly the first film, I think you have to start every conversation with Macaulay Culkin because he is something special. He's not just a kid actor. Even looking back on his performance today, and we're now 30 years removed from the first film, that's really hard to believe. There's something extra behind those eyes. There's almost a wisdom, like there is a winking adult mind working uh, inside of a kid's body. And I think that that's what probably attracted John John Hughes to Macaulay Culkin in the first place. Where do you live? Uh, I can't tell you that. Why not? Because you're a stranger. He actually is able to bring a lived-in quality to his characters, and that's very rare. There's not a whole lot of child actors that can do that. 
And I honestly think it's because when you're young and when you're, when you're an actor, and particularly when you are the star of the movie, as Macaulay Culkin is, you have to deal with some very adult pressures. You have the weight of the film resting on your shoulders. And according to director Chris Columbus in the movie's commentary, you also had the resentment of your co-stars, both young and old. There's a little professional jealousy from a lot of the actors on the set because you were the star. There's this little kid who was the star who we were all paying an enormous amount of attention to who was carrying the film and uh, there's a lot of passive-aggressive stuff going on. As a filmmaker, you're asking an audience to buy a movie in which Kevin McAllister is essentially the smartest character in the movie, with very few exceptions. There's not a whole lot of actors that could make that beat believable. Macaulay Culkin is one of them. Last year I got a sweater with a big bird knitted on it. Oh, that's nice. Not for a guy in the second grade. You can get beat up for wearing something like that. It really is one of my favorite young actor performances of all time, and I think it's overlooked as an actual performance by people a lot because it's in a family film, a slapstick comedy film like Home Alone. As I mentioned, Chris Columbus was in the director's chair for both Home Alone and Home Alone 2, and John Hughes, after writing the script and beginning to produce the film, didn't have to look too far to find his director because, as we mentioned in a previous episode, Chris Columbus was already slated to direct at one time National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, however, could not get along with Chevy Chase, said, I would rather starve than work with this guy, so he passed on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, John Hughes brought his next project to Chris Columbus, which was Home Alone, turned out to be, to that point, the biggest box office hit for both of their careers. So it turns out that Chevy Chase being kind of a jerk was the best thing that ever happened to Chris Columbus. Other than Kevin, the two most critical roles in Home Alone were the Wet Bandits, the two burglars that attempt to break into the McAllister home and are ultimately put through the ringer by Kevin's traps. One of the actors that was cast was Daniel Stern, who initially turned down the role because they didn't offer him enough money. They eventually brought in another actor, Daniel Roebuck, who's been in many things, has a very long and storied acting career, but as it turns out, didn't quite have the chemistry they were looking for in that role, so they ended up paying Stern what he wanted and brought him in as Marv. And Daniel Stern, out of everybody in the movie, makes me laugh the most. Where'd he go? Maybe committed suicide. And it's partially because he's bouncing off Joe Pesci, who was coming off an Academy Award win for Goodfellas, hadn't done anything in the neighborhood of Home Alone before. And as a matter of fact, Chris Columbus was shocked that Pesci even accepted the role. I think we're getting scammed by a kindergartner. Sometimes there's a combination of actors that's just movie magic. And while a big part of the credit to Home Alone being such a classic to begin with is on Macaulay Culkin, I think a large part of it is also in the interaction between Harry and Marv because their dialogue, which could be stilted or could kind of fall flat, really leaps off the page because those two interact so beautifully. You're going to call the cops! He's not calling the From a treehouse? The rest of Home Alone's main cast was rounded out by John Hurd as Kevin's father, Catherine O'Hara, who in my books can do no wrong as Kevin's mother, and John Candy, who shot his entire appearance in the film over the course of one long 23-hour day. We left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. All day. You know, we went back at night when, you know, when we came to our senses, and there he was. Apparently, he was there alone all day with a corpse. 
And there's a very interesting what if hindsight is 2020 situation with this movie, particularly if you were an executive at Warner Brothers at the time. Originally, Warner Brothers was going to produce and release Home Alone, but there was a budget discrepancy. They couldn't get within budget. It was only an issue of less than $10 million, but it was enough for Warner Brothers to essentially shut down the movie. Luckily, 20th Century Fox was there immediately with the funding to keep the movie on track. They didn't lose a day of production, but that $10 million or less budget discrepancy that Warner Brothers had ended up costing them hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue at the box office, from home video, from merchandising, from the sequel, from everything else. And it just goes to show you how sometimes making the smart financial move in the moment could be the wrong financial move in the long run. And I can't imagine why that would be relevant to Warner Brothers uh, at this time or really any other time. No, nothing comes to mind. I'm sorry. It's too late. Once shooting was underway, things got a little complicated because when the star of the movie is a 10-year-old kid, that means there are very limited hours that he can be on set. And as a matter of fact, in the commentary for the film, Chris Columbus and Macaulay Culkin, who recorded it back in 2007, talk about the fact that many of the adult actors had to do their scenes without Macaulay Culkin present because they would have to put the camera on him, shoot as much as they could, and then either let him go to school, or if it was a night shoot, couldn't keep him past 10 p.m. You'll always see, I tried to block sequences where I could sort of keep Macaulay off by himself and keep the other actors in another space so I could shoot people separately. Child labor laws again. Child labor laws. And that's not easy for an actor. It's not easy for Macaulay Culkin. It's not easy for the adults because obviously you want to be in the moment. You want to be there with the person you're doing the scene with. This is one of those situations where that just wasn't possible. What makes you say that? Just out of curiosity. I'm old enough to know how it works. All right. Something that I think is very appealing about Home Alone is that it's a very simple movie. Not simple as an underdeveloped, but the plot is pretty straightforward. Kevin's family goes out, they leave him home alone, some burglars try to break in, and he fends off the burglars. That's pretty much the plot of the movie. Now, there's little episodic things that happen along the way, but you don't have a lot to keep track of. And that's why I think it's so funny that in the years after Home Alone's release, there have been all these side discussions that have popped up. One that I don't really subscribe to is this narrative that has emerged in the decades after Home Alone because what happens is we're kids, we watch these movies, we grow up, and then we bring our knowledge of these movies into pop culture and debate them and do stuff like that. But th this, this argument that Kevin's family is terrible, that's partially true. There are many members of his family that are awful. His brother Buzz is really terrible to Kevin. I wouldn't let you sleep in my room if you were growing on my ass. And his uncle Frank is even worse. Look what you did, you little jerk. But a lot of people come after Kevin's mother. Kevin! It's not entirely on her shoulders. And by the way, she's the only member of the family that isn't content to just sit in Paris and wait for there to be a flight. She goes through hell and back. I have been awake for almost 60 hours. I have been from Chicago to Paris to Dallas to... Where the hell am I? I am trying to get home to my eight-year-old son. I think that Kevin's mother is one of the only members of his family that actually shows some initiative and some love and care for Kevin, and I don't think that she deserves the kind of scorn that so many people have put on her. Yes, it is very unfortunate what happens to Kevin, but I do not lay that at the feet of Kevin's mom, and I certainly don't lay his abuse at the feet of her. It's mainly everybody else in the family. You're what the French call les incompetents.
But there's another weird conversation that's popped up around Home Alone. And again, I didn't know anything about this until I was watching the commentary for the film. But apparently, there is a fairly substantial number of people in the world that believe that not only is Elvis Presley alive, but that he appears in the film as an extra behind Catherine O'Hara in the airport right before she meets John Candy's character. They are convinced, these people, that this is Elvis Presley. He's come back, he's, he's faked his death, and he was now, because he still loves show business, now an extra in Home Alone. This has got to be the weirdest, most low-stakes conspiracy theory of all time. I'll allow it because I think it's kind of cool that there is maybe a 1% chance that if Elvis were alive, he would decide to go be an extra in Home Alone because he just likes movies for the kids. There's another curious thing about this film, Elvis Presley aside. Why this movie? It wasn't especially high budget. It didn't have huge stars in it. I think Joe Pesci at that time was the biggest star in the movie. Why did this movie break out so huge? And people that haven't grown up with it, I've shown it just to a few of them. And they watch it and they just kind of go like, why? Why is this movie the beloved classic that it is? I think it's down to a few things. First of all, Chris Columbus is really able to capture, for so many, the spirit of Christmas. And yes, there is some treacly sweet stuff in this movie, but there's also a lot of darkness. And in the commentary for the film, Chris Columbus talks about harnessing that because he believes that Christmas is inherently a very contrasting time of year. There's good and bad in it for everybody. If you watch Home Alone in the summertime, it's a nice movie, but if you watch it at Christmas time, for whatever reason, it these these images tend to resonate a little more and they feel mm -hmm. a little more touching. It's not just about being happy and being with your family, it's about being separated at mm -hmm. the same time. And I love I love that concept. And I love the fact that there's a touch of darkness, you know, in this movie. And that's what I love about the dynamic between Kevin and Marley, the man who lives down the street. When they finally meet, I think what you see are two characters who were separated by generations, but who are both confronting their own fear of loneliness. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. And Kevin is imparting this knowledge about overcoming your fear, which is the theme in the movie for the entire movie for Kevin, to Marley, and ultimately it's what ends up saving both of them. They're both able to overcome their fear and in the end, get what they want. And I know that's really deep for a movie about two bumbling thieves that try to break into a suburban Chicago house and slip on micro machines, but I think this is why the movie does so well. Because even though you may not be registering it, it works on a lot of different levels and is doing some kind of complex and complicated things with its characters, or at least way more complex and complicated than you may be giving it credit for. You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. The edge that the movie has, though, isn't just in the script's themes, it's also in the musical themes, the actual score of the film. This was another case of a happy accident. There was another composer that was originally slated to do the film who had to drop out due to scheduling reasons. And as a joke, Chris Columbus said, why don't we try to get the greatest composer of all time? As a joke, they said, wouldn't it be great if we get John Williams? He's out of his mind. He loved the movie and he agreed to score the movie. This is low-key one of my favorite John Williams scores because it does so much. Right from the beginning with the opening credits, you have a mixture that is 50-50 Halloween horror and Christmas joy. And to get that to work is not an easy task.
As a matter of fact, John Williams was nominated for two Oscars for his work on this movie. He was nominated for Best Score, for his musical score, and he was also nominated for co-writing the original song Somewhere in My Memory, which lost to Dick Tracy and Stephen Sondheim for Best Original Song. So you have a great cast, you have a great script, you have a great score from John Williams, but there is another element that's very crucial to the film's success that not a lot of people count when they're thinking about the greatness of this movie. And I think part of it is that Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are so great as Harry and Marv that when they take these big falls throughout the movie, you just assume that it's them because it's such a well-made film. But as a matter of fact, the stunt team on Home Alone deserves so much credit for the film's success because that's where the movie's biggest laughs are. Come and get me. You guys give up? Oh yeah, thirsty for more. That credit goes to the stunts team, which was led by stunt coordinator Freddie Heiss, Troy Brown, who doubled for Joe Pesci, and Leon Delaney, who doubled for Daniel Stern. And if you think those stunts were the product of fake steps and padding, etc., Think again, because those guys were taking those falls for real. We did everything for real. We didn't ever, you know, use rubber steps or put rubber down on the sidewalks. Basically, it's just throwing yourself up and landing hard. As a matter of fact, the stunts in Home Alone were so impressive that in the stunt community, it led to a whole new system of naming. Now, when somebody does a fall where they get a lot of air and they fall on their back, they call it the Home Alone. The hard work and literal physical pain of the stunt team helps to draw the line between two types of comedy, what Chris Columbus calls in the commentary as hard comedy and soft comedy. When it hurts, the more it hurts, the funnier it is. Yeah. It's and Three Stooges. It is three, it is Three Stooges, it is. And uh, it is that kind of pain. And, and it's that, funny, it's funny today, it's yeah. fun. It just, it's, there's something about people getting hurt. Mm -hmm. I think these big stunts and big tricks are a reason, again, why this movie has endured for so long, because it's the same reason that people still watch Roadrunner and Bugs Bunny cartoons. It's the same reason that people still watch The Three Stooges. That kind of physical comedy, that kind of hard comedy, taps into something that every one of us has inside of us. And it's a little bit of a dark side of our soul. Again, it's that blend of the light and the dark, the light of the joy of laughter, the darkness of laughing at someone else who's grievously injured. But that is where so much of the joy from this movie comes. It's laughing at the pain of these two bungling robbers. <laughs> Home Alone works because it taps into so many different things and because you walk out brushing a tear from your eye, whether that's a tear of laughter, whether that's a tear of sadness or a tear of joy, it's still, a, it's still an emotion. It still makes you feel something, and that's what so many of the great movies do. However they do it, and if they mix the different tones like this movie does, then it's even better. They can make you feel something, and that's why it was so successful. Home Alone was put on the release calendar for just before Thanksgiving in 1990, and unsurprisingly, given the fact that so much of it relies on slapstick humor and complete disregard for the bodily harm of its adult stars, many critics, including the standard bearers at the time, Siskel and Ebert, were not fans of this future holiday classic. I think I would have liked the movie more if it had been much more realistic. In yes, other words, that's what, what I'm saying. What would really happen exactly. if a little kid were left home alone? That is a big moment in every kid's life. And I thought this movie was going to tap into it, and instead we get slapstick and we get a phony thing with a mass murder. Despite these so-so reviews, when the film opened on November 16th, 1990, it actually ended its opening weekend as the number one film in the country, ahead of Rocky V, which had been its direct competition. Despite the fact that Rocky V 
Drive opened on 2,000 screens and Home Alone only opened on 1,200 screens. As a matter of fact, the fact that audiences couldn't get into screenings of Home Alone despite the big buzz because it wasn't in as many theaters is a key component to the movie's success, according to Chris Columbus, and a release pattern that you wouldn't even see nowadays. We sold out all our theaters, which was advantageous in two ways. It was a comedy, so the theaters were packed and mm -hmm. people were laughing and it made the experience so much more exciting and it meant that some people couldn't get in and it created this excitement about mm -hmm. going to see the movie. Now you can't get that. Every There's a sense of greed. Everybody wants all their money on the first weekend and it disappears. Despite not playing in 2,000 theaters until its fifth week of release, Home Alone was the number one movie in America for three months until it was dethroned by Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy in February of 1991. It stayed in the box office top five until March and was in theaters until June of 1991. And while a lot of people may know that Home Alone was a big box office hit, you may forget that it was, at one time, the third highest grossing movie of all time domestically. And when you adjust for inflation, it is the 43rd highest grossing movie ever, just above Star Wars The Last Jedi. Home Alone also has its own corner of the history books when it comes to the home video market because it changed the way business was done there too. The way that the home video market used to work was that when a movie was released on VHS, it was usually at a very high price if you wanted to buy it and take it home, usually around $100. What this was intended to do was for there to be a window where a video store like Blockbuster Video could rent the video to you at 2 or $3 to go home, take it home, and bring it back over the weekend. And then after several months, the price on the VHS would come down to $19.95 or $14.95. It basically gave video stores a window where the most economic option for 99% of people was to rent the video from them and then buy the video later when the price was brought down. What Home Alone did was skip that initial rental window, so when the movie came out on VHS, it wasn't priced at $100. It was priced at the same $14.95, $19.95 price point as most movies would be several months after their video release. Right now, when you buy the new Home Alone video, you get this free poster so you can follow the action every step of the way. $24.98 or $5 less with Pepsi rebate. As a matter of fact, at one time, Home Alone was reportedly tied with E.T. the Extraterrestrial as the biggest selling videotape of all time. Time, generating a reported $150 million in additional revenue for the studio. Why? Because people were buying it right away instead of renting it at Blockbuster. If you were to take all of the revenue streams of Home Alone along with its budget and adjust them for inflation, it's very likely, almost certain, that the film would have generated almost a billion dollars in revenue, box office, home video, merchandising, etc., off of a $36 million budget. Sorry, WB, you got this one wrong. And with a hit that massive, you know that a sequel was absolutely inevitable. And that is exactly what we got two years later on Thanksgiving weekend, 1992. The sequel to Home Alone, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, which was, not for nothing, the most anticipated movie of my young life up to that point. Only two things could ruin this vacation. And they just hit town. Hiya, pal. Ah! Home
Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Now, if you haven't seen Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, I don't think it's unfair to say that it is pretty much a carbon copy of the original movie. And it's something that in the commentary for the first film, Chris Columbus himself basically acknowledges. Well, we, we actually never did that gag in the second one, did we? I can't remember. I, I you know, People accused us on the second one of just remaking the first one, which yeah. to some extent we did. I, yeah. I, I, but that it, was what was enjoyable about it. It was you know? fun because you actually got to push the envelope a little more. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen Home Alone 2, the plot is pretty easy. Kevin ends up in New York. He checks into the Plaza Hotel using his dad's credit card. The wet bandits, Harry and Marv, who are now the sticky bandits, decide that they're going to rob all of the money intended for a children's hospital from a toy store on Christmas Eve. So Kevin sets out to stop them and sets a brutal series of traps in a townhouse that his family owns in New York. There's also a side plot replacing the old man Marley plot from the first episode where Kevin meets a homeless pigeon lady in the park who is played by Brenda Fricker and gives her some life lessons before leaving her out in the cold to go back and hang out with his family in the warm suite at the Plaza Hotel. But the most remarkable thing about Home Alone 2, as with so many other sequels, is that it ups the ante to a ridiculous amount. The brutality in this film is off the charts because Kevin goes from precocious youngster protecting his family home from a couple of burglars to a real sadist. Give it to me! Looking to punish these thieves through bludgeoning, electrocution, falling down shafts, hitting them with huge pipes, hitting them with even more paint cans. You name it, Kevin wants to inflict pain up to the point of burning them alive. Now why would anybody soak a rope in kerosene? Merry Christmas. It is so ridiculously cartoonish that it makes what Kevin does to the wet bandits in the first movie look merciful in comparison. And let's be honest here, Home Alone 2 is a lot like Die Hard 2 in that it is an attempt to recreate the first film that doesn't come close to the high heights, but isn't a terrible movie. There are some highlights to the film. Tim Curry is great in this movie. This was actually the first time I'd ever seen him in anything, so there's a part of me that always will first recognize Tim Curry as the concierge from Home Alone 2. Get down on your knees and tell me you love me. I love you. Macaulay Culkin is charming, and everything else is pretty much the same. As a matter of fact, retroactively, I think the most notable thing about Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is that it features a cameo from the future president of the United States. Excuse me, where's the lobby? Down the hall and to the left. Thanks. As you might expect, critics, including Siskel and Ebert, didn't exactly flip out over Home Alone 2 either. This time, too, I felt the burglar scenes were even more annoying Again, marginal thumbs down for me on Home Alone 2, and I know that every 10-year-old kid in America is going to hate me for it. Usually, live-action versions of cartoons don't work because when flesh and blood is involved, it's not that funny. Even though it was a bigger version of the first film, Home Alone 2 still operated on a pretty modestly increased budget, and it did well at the box office. Its opening was almost double of the first film, but its final tally was almost $100 million lower, which means a lot of people went to see the movie when it came out, but it didn't have anywhere close to the staying power of the first Home Alone movie. And that's to be expected. It's very rare that we see a sequel, particularly a sequel like Home Alone 2, which is kind of the same thing over again, equal or even come close to the impact of the first movie. 
This would be the last Home Alone film starring Macaulay Culkin. There was one more theatrical Home Alone film that came out in 1997 called Home Alone 3. It was an entirely new family, an entirely new cast of characters. The weird thing is that even though nobody really likes that movie or thinks it even comes close to the first two films, Roger Ebert gave it three stars and thought it was the best movie of all of them. Now, this is going to astound you, but I'm giving the movie thumbs up. It does astound me. Are you okay? Uh, better than you were the day that you liked Starship Troopers. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. This is the one where they finally got it right. I liked it better than the other two. Than it the makes, original Home Alone? Makes... One real-life legacy thing, though, about Home Alone 2 is the merchandising. There was a lot of it on the first movie, video games, etc. But the studios knew what they had the second time around, and they had stuff ready to go. And one thing that was the number one item on my Christmas list the year that Home Alone 2 came out was the Talk Boy which is a little portable handheld recorder that Kevin uses in the movie. It even has speed control. Hi, kids. We're home early. Hi, kids. We're home early. On the sliding scale of movie products, it definitely did not disappoint me as much as the Power Glove, which still sets the gold standard for things that look cool in movies and absolutely did not work in real life. I'm still not over how disappointing the Power Glove was. The Talk Boy pretty much did what was advertised, but as you would expect, was nowhere near as functional or as cool as you saw in the movie. Yes, you could record, you could slow the voice down, but I really don't think it would fool a hotel clerk at the number one hotel in the United States if I was trying to call and use my dad's credit card to book a room. Yes, sir, you'll need a major credit card upon checking. Credit card, you got it. When you look at the legacy of both of these films, in addition to what I've talked about before, I really do think that there's just a purity to both of them. And and even though there is so much carnage and so much bodily harm done to some of the characters in the film, I really do think that there is also something that's very sweet and something very hopeful about family, about connection to your family, about being separated and learning the value of them. This is something that John Hughes is exceptional at doing, particularly in his holiday scripts. He's able to tap into what makes this season so special for so many people and also the sadness in the characters that don't have have that because that's a recurring theme. Times may change, but these themes, particularly when you get to Christmas and the holiday season, will always remain relevant. And that's why Chris Columbus has talked about being particularly proud of this film because it is exactly what he wanted it to be, which is timeless. The key for me is to always create films that don't feel dated. A picture like Home Alone still makes an audience laugh as hard as it did when it was first released. And that's that to me is what we wanted to do way back then. You know, the goal was always, the mantra was always, guys, when we're old and gray and it's 3 a.m. and this pops up on the late show, I want to make sure that none of us are embarrassed by it. Both of these films, particularly the first one, are certainly timeless to me, and that's why I own both of them and love revisiting both of them. And when you look at these two discs here, I have one for Home Alone and one for Home Alone 2, it's kind of the tale of two discs, because this version of Home Alone that I have is actually a pretty solid home video release, because you have, it's on Blu-ray, of course, you have the HD print, it's a great-looking print. You also have the commentary, which we've heard bits and pieces of throughout this episode, and then there's a really healthy list list of special features. You have deleted scenes from the film. If your doors are open, we're coming inside. Harry and Mark are coming to town. There is a blooper reel. Are you afraid to go out the window, Harry? I'm Harry. <laughs> <laughs> You have an extended look at the movie within the movie, Angels with Filthy Souls. All right, Johnny. But what about my money? 
What money? There's also a 1990 press featurette to promote the film that features Joe Pesci in what I can only describe as the 90s in one outfit. These people leave their beautiful homes and presents on Christmas. You also have a look at something called the Mac Cam. They basically gave Macaulay Culkin a home video camera and let him walk around the set filming. There's some very cute moments between him and the cast and the crew of the film. Is that Kevin McAllister? We love you, Kevin. Oh God, can we have your autograph? Please, we love you so much. Yo, this, the new kids. You also see what the film sounds like as it was dubbed into languages from all around the world. I made my family disappear. And you have a pretty interesting making of feature at. Yeah, what should I do here? Okay. Do a dollar shot. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. As well as a look at the stunt work done in the film. No pads, no wires, no matrix. Ah, yeah, crap. It was just real. Two guys flinging themselves in the air to their backs. They don't make stunts like that anymore. And it's a good thing that there's so many features on the Home Alone discs because there's pretty much nothing on the version of Home Alone 2 that I have. You've got the movie and a couple of trailers, and that's about it. It is the essential bare-bones disc, uh, but really, the first movie is the one that has the interesting stories. I really don't know how much there was to, to plumb the depths there on Home Alone 2, so uh, I'm very appreciative of this version of Home Alone that I own. And then Home Alone 2 serves its purpose, which is it has the movie on it. I'm probably going to watch it half as much as I watched the first one and really they're both on Disney Plus at this point so of all the movies we've talked about these Blu-ray discs are probably the biggest dinosaurs of all the ones that I've shown so far. And that pretty much wraps up my look at Home Alone and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, two classics of my generation. Next week, though, we are going to look at a holiday film that has been a classic for many generations of people, Frank Capra's 1946 It's a Wonderful Life. And I am very excited to announce that my guest next week will be one of the most influential critical voices uh, for me growing up and for so many other people. Leonard Malton will be joining me next week to discuss It's a Wonderful Life, and I cannot wait. It is such an honor to have him on the show, and I'm so happy he could be here to really wrap up our holiday movie discussions. So please tune in next week for It's a Wonderful Life. As I mentioned, if you're watching me on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, please consider heading over to Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you enjoy listening to audio podcasts. Leave us a rating and review, and if you like the show, please tell your friends. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the video version, head on over to Schmodown Entertainment Network on YouTube. I can't wait to talk about It's a Wonderful Life with Leonard Malton next week, but for now, it's time to go back on the show. Thanks for watching.